You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. It's because you don't want to make your editor's job too easy. I'm Brit Vita. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 90, The Editor's Take. Welcome back, listeners, for episode ninety. Wow, I know. How? How I don't did know. we? I have how, no idea. I don't remember we? most of it. Um, <laughs> we are so excited <laughs> to welcome a special guest with us for our ninetieth episode. Breit, it's so great to have you on the program. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your work? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, first, I am super intimidated by this. 90 episodes in, I'm sure you have nothing to learn from me. No. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, I am an executive editor at Orbit Books. Uh, I have been in book publishing for over a decade now, just barely, like a couple months over a decade. And um, some of the authors that I've worked with include N.K. Jemison, Megan e. O'Keefe, C.L. Clark, Hannah Witten, Evan Winter, Andrea Stewart, Django Wexler, David Douglish, and Chelsea Abdullah. Um, and, uh, and I was making that list today, and I kept adding more and more and more. And I was like, I can't just list all the authors I've worked with. And I was like, but they're all great. They all deserve a shout out. <laughs> We just keep going, uh, and, the, and the podcast is just a list of names. And it's like, <laughs> can the podcast it's, just it's, be me, yeah. like, reading the books? To you? Can that just be it? That would be our special that features. That really we'll soothing, those. actually. I would yeah. enjoy that. <laughs> uh, I'll just get, like, a special audible credit for everybody. That's perfect. <laughs> but, a, but a huge list of very cool people, some of whom have been That's on true. this show in the past, and... Yeah. Some of whom we would love to have on this show in the future. So. True. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <Very> absolutely. <laughs> Wait, who has been on the podcast before? I think C.O. Clark came on, right? Yeah. yeah. C.O. Clark and Andrea Stewart. Andrea Stewart. Okay, awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they're excellent people to talk to about world building because their worlds are awesome. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. Great Very conversations with both. Amazing ones. <laughs> I, 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 And I think in both cases, you sent me their books well ahead of time to read for blurbing. And I'm like, this book is amazing. We need to get them on the podcast. <laughs> I think that's the, I think that's the case. I, in fact, I was like looking at uh, all of my emails from you searching for, you know, the login information for this, this Zoom call. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did. I did like spam him with <laughs> books. To read. Uh, we always oh, enjoy yeah. being you can spammed with books. Always keep yeah. doing that. It's good spam. I will. <laughs> I will never be unhappy receiving books that you edited. Aw. <laughs> well, I will throw them at you then. No worries. <laughs> Absolutely impressive list of folks that you have worked with. Um, and yeah, and just really just a huge range of different kinds of worlds too, which has to be so fun 
to see just the range of different kinds of worlds that people are creating and, and working with and playing with. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's so fun to see how different authors approach it too. So I have some authors that are like vibes only and the you have to kind of figure out the world building from there. And I have some that have just kind of like mind bogglingly amazing worlds that they've just built out from scratch. And then I, and I just get like lost in them and, and both are incredible approaches both have um like obviously positives and negatives to them but they're both fun to edit and um yeah yeah it's fun to see like how people come to where they are <laughs> so what are parts of like like what do you love about world building and world building with with your your authors like what's the fun part so so I actually don't really do like I don't get to be sort of like the person who helps come up with the ideas for obvious reasons. I'm more of the person who comes in at the end. And so I it's fun for me to just kind of like poke at things and be like, is this structurally sound or is this something you just thought was cool? <laughs> and like, how can we how can we either sort of beef it up so that it actually it makes sense and is incorporated into sort of the plot? Or how can we um, how can we scale it back or alter it in some way? And sometimes the answer is um, to pull it out entirely. Sometimes the answer is my favorite is to pull it out and put it in like the ephemera. So like do an epigraph, like chapter epigraphs or like back matter. I love ephemera. So that stuff is really fun for me. I may I I don't know if I have like the like a popular opinion on that, but those oh, are no, my favorite. I, I love uh, I love ephemera. I think it's oh, so fun. So great. <laughs> I love my favorite. The like every once in a while, I'll have an author who puts who does the chapter epigraphs, and one of them will be like a children's song, and it's always so wonderful because you think of like London bridges falling down, and and like an author has taken their world and taken sort of the history and, and, and smushed it down to be sort of this little two line children's song. And you're like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, and you're like, what's the history of this was like, well, there was an atrocity. <laughs> <laughs> That's always yeah. it. That's yeah. always it. <laughs> it's such a cute children's song. Well, it's terrible. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> exactly exactly and that's why that's why they're so fun because there's always like a cool answer but um but yeah so 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 that's kind of the fun part for me is kind of like poking and being um a little bit of the stick in the mud being like hey that doesn't i don't mm, that doesn't make sense and so we, forcing them to kind of like explain themselves either on the page or in some other T- intangible way that kind of like beefs it up elsewhere. So we, we build our houses of cards and you come along and just kind of like flick them. Blow on them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah. many moments of, oh, I was really hoping that my editor wouldn't notice that. But she did! So I guess I have to answer that question now. Dang it. I get, I get that all the time where they're like, I was hoping you wouldn't notice. <laughs> but it's so good though. I mean, like the thing is like, Yes, the the cheeky, sneaky child part of us as writers, I think, wants to be like, oh, I was hoping you wouldn't notice. Except if you notice, then some readers are going to notice. And so we need the editor to be like, actually, you you do need to fill in that gap. You do need to do something (laughs) there. (laughs) Yeah. Other people will also notice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I like to take an approach. Well, I take an approach that I call Mr. Magooing my way through a book. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that character. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but I am. Yes, I am. But in case our listeners aren't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Please explain. 
<laughs> Mr. Bigu is like an old old timey character from old timey cartoons where he just kind of like walks around and trips over things and like doesn't know how things work and is just like Amelia Bedelia but on steroids and like a man in a hat. So so that's what I what I do is I just like I want to fall into every plot hole and tell you like oh, that's there that's there that's there every every like crack i'm going to tell you where it is and sometimes and sometimes the answer to filling in those cracks is not as difficult as it may seem at first glance i just want to make you aware of it like one of my very favorite examples of um a person fixing their whole magic system so Hannah Witten is an author she writes like romantic fan like epic fantasy stories and one of in her book two of her duology she had characters go to this underworld where all the magic system changed and she had to invent a whole new magic system basically and one of the things that she had was the magic was transferred between characters via kissing and I was like and I was like okay but why and <laughs> and that seems a very for the vibes kind of. I, kind I of do love the idea have, of magic as an STD, but <laughs> well, so the way that she fixed it is my very favorite way, and it's something that I call like putting a hat on it, but other people call like lampshading. But I, but she just called attention to it. So, I, so she took that moment and that, and afterwards, immediately had the characters be like, why, why. Why? <laughs> and the other one was like, I don't know. Mitt's world is dramatic. <laughs> and it worked. It totally worked sort of with the tone of the book and the way the dialogue worked and the way with the level of information the characters in world had about the world. It, it, it just worked. And so it, as long as you kind of erase the question or address the question that the reader is going to have, then then you can kind of get away with a lot more than you think you can. <laughs> Though now I'm wondering if like a makeout session is like a lot of like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, <laughs> or is it just oh my gosh one switch? Yeah, like, is it go one way? What counts? Or one kiss? <laughs> I, I have, yeah, I have follow up questions yeah. about it. <laughs> I you know there's no book three, so I don't know that we're ever going to oh. get those answers, unfortunately. Maybe but bonus <laughs> content someday. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I'm gonna to talk to Hannah and be like, "I need you to write like like a fan fiction of your own work." <laughs> right. Give yeah. me a short, a bonus short story. Put it in your newsletter. User's guide. <laughs> Perfect. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and since we are all huge nerds here and have absolutely answered this question many times, what is your favorite fantasy world? That, that you'd either like to like play in on a dragon free day or or maybe just prefer reading about because it's you know we have agreed that most fantasy worlds are not places we actually want to go to but your favorite fantasy world to immerse yourself in um in one way or another so so i had to think about this question for a long time for exactly the reason that you <laughs> said which is that all fantasy worlds kind of suck for many reasons like most of them don't have like Pl indoor plumbing and I'm not about that <laughs> but I so I so I did the two answers the cheating two answers I love reading the world building of the fifth season um N.K. Jemison is a master world builder and like has a not a TED talk a master class literally about world building and so I I love the way that she's 
built out her world from the ground up, literally. But I do not want to be there. No. That sounds horrible. That sounds like a terrible uh, <laughs> And so the place I would like to visit, so there, I have an author, and their name is Alex White, and they wrote their not their debut, but their debut with me, um, was a book called A Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe. And that world I would love to bounce around in because it is like this, this like sci-fi fantasy world where every character, not every character, but like I imagine I would because I'm the main character, uh, gets sort of a magical affinity that they use in sort of like these space ways. Um, And it feels very much to me like getting your Hogwarts house, but without the anti-trans bigotry. Um, And so like, I just, I want to go, I want to know what my magical affinity is. And I want to like bop around on into these like crazy planets and, um, and just have fun there. (laughs) I saw some smiles. Have any of y'all read that book? I've yes. read the first one, and Alex and I are agent siblings, so. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So I read. I haven't. I've got the second two. I just haven't whittled my, you know, TBR. But oh, the first yeah, one no, was so much fun. I I enjoyed it. So it just it just it had a great vibe. It just had a great energy to it, and yeah, yeah. that'd be a fun that'd be a fun universe to bounce around in. <laughs> Yeah, I, I call their, like, world building t- very Technicolor. It's, like, neon yeah. Technicolor, just, like, rainbow fun. Yeah, totally. <laughs> those are good examples of, like, if you have a good idea, like, use it. Like, lean into every good idea that you have instead of, like, being like, oh, I need to save this. Like, no, just try it. Yeah. See if it works, because why hold back for later? Make it big. It now occurs to me, it's so rare to have, like, a fantasy world where the world you know, where it is a fun, cool place to go. Because if you're world building for, you know, either for writing stories or for doing RPGs, you need to make many things wrong with it so that there's something for your characters to do. Because <laughs> if it is just like a fun hangout world, there's no story. Yeah. Yeah, you need you need conflict. <laughs> well it's funny how often in, in fantasy, yeah, the conflict and the stakes ramp up fast and make the world a very dangerous place. Um, yeah. Perhaps only for the characters, but perhaps for Everyone. everybody within the blast radius as well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, Absolutely. I think it is a good distinction, though, that it's, I mean, you, you can, in fact, build a story with stakes, with, you know, with big stakes, with meaty stakes in a world that actually wouldn't suck to visit. Like, it is possible. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that world is that universe is on the edge of like being destroyed, but no, but the regular people don't know right. that. So, so that's so why I feel like it, it would be bad. Right. Yeah, you, you exactly. know, it doesn't hurt you. It's fine, <laughs> right? Like Until how cool it goes would it supernova, be? You know? <laughs> like how cool would it be to be like in the Mistborn universe, but like you don't really know that the Empire is evil. You're just kind of like bopping around using like metal magic. <laughs> fair. Yeah, and I feel like that's the trick, is that what you were saying is that all all world building is usually done to sort of serve the plot, which is why everything sucks, usually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like when we're, as authors, world building, and depending on how we world build and how we approach this, I mean, we may be kind of just geeking out about, like, this cool thing that we're putting in, or, like, you know, Marshall makes spreadsheets... I, I draw sketches of so many sketches of, of maps, and I'm like mapping out my biomes. But I mean, that's that's where that's where our brains are going. But like, as an editor, when you're reading a draft and you're thinking about the world building in a draft, like what what are you reading for and looking for and thinking about? 
I'm literally just ma- trying to figure out if it makes sense. I, like I said, I'm just poking at stuff. I'm trying to figure out, like, is this serving the plot? Is this making sense um, on sort of just the most very basic level because like i'm i'm of the opinion that you can kind of make anything work you if you have sort of the skill you can make any world building you want to make work work you just have to it just has to serve the plot and it has to make sense and so so that's all i'm looking for is trying to make sure that that everything connects in a way that either serves the vibes or serves the plot or uh, (laughs) um or just like makes the reading experience overall fun. And, um, you know, you can, it, it's easier for me to see the stuff that's not working. Um, just because that's the stuff that's my job to sort of pinpoint. So I was just going to say, I, I feel like there's like lots of ways that world building can serve plot. World building can like be the plot, like the unbroken or any of the other examples that we've, we've built out or world building can just enhance the vibes or the experience. And so an example I like for sort of the building out of the experience is, is Essa Hansen, who wrote a novel called No Fed Gloss, which is this bonkers sci-fi with just like the craziest aliens and coolest world building. And every time I tell her that, she's like, it's just underwater creatures that are put in space. And I'm like, no, no, this is, you're not giving yourself enough credit. This is way cool. And I've never seen anything like it. But um, but But the plot, it is like in the first it gets wilder it's sort of book two and book three but in the first book is kind of straightforward it's a revenge story but the world building is um is so complex and interesting and it it, it doesn't serve all serve the plot but it all serves sort of the vibes of how big and wondrous this thing is so yeah i mean i feel like so i think it can work too a ways. lot of sci-fi fantasy readers i mean they're reading partially for the experience right i mean if you just wanted a, a mystery or a romance or a revenge story or a war story. Those are all out there. Um, but I mean, our, our readers are coming to sci-fi fantasy partially because they want to dive into those worlds and, and feel those worlds and experience, you know, the wonder or the kookiness or whatever is going to come their way. Um, like as, as you're reading for like kind of the, does, does the world make sense? Like what are, spots or ways or um i guess common pitfalls that you tend to see writers making off the top of my head if you've written a page where a character is literally reading something out of a book then you've probably gone wrong (laughs) i don't know i I feel like the pitfalls in world building either kind of go two ways it's either that you've gotten so enamored with your world building that there's just too much on the page and it's not all serving a purpose or you have gotten too enamored with your character interactions and the world doesn't make sense doesn't support it so it 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 really can just kind of go either of those ways and and they're not that difficult to fix as long as as long as you've kind of paid like a half a little bit of attention to both in your drafting like you can kind of you can always cut and scale back and put things in the ephemera um or you can or you can or you can sort of just beef things up or call attention to things um in order to make make things feel better um another another problem that i notice is just kind of a problem with rendering is that sometimes authors will miss which spots they need to sort of render out like a video game where they need to just just populate a scene um to make it feel real or lived in and where they need to um maybe skip that part and just move on to the <laughs> on to the action. 
So yeah, it's all about the balancing act. I'm always sort of enamored when people get it right because it seems so tricky and it's all it's all instinct. <laughs> Writer's instincts tend to either go write all the world building into the text and then have to be told, no, <laughs> this is lovely. You've got to cut it out. <laughs> Put it in the ephemera. This, is, this should be one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or the other way is just explain nothing and then have to be told this, you got to open it up a little, which, which tends to be the way I go, because if I'm allowed to explain everything, I will go too far. It <laughs> should be in the ephemera. And I always been like, I'm going to under explain and then let in the editorial process be told which things are the things that need further explaining. And then the other stuff can just not need it because apparently it doesn't need it. Or at least I'm trusting my editor that, that it doesn't need it. Yeah. No, I mean, that that is probably sort of the best way to go about it because I know the iceberg metaphor is really overplayed and kind of boring. But I, I, I still like it because I like all the stuff underneath the water in the iceberg. I like for the author to have thought about all of that stuff, because even if it isn't on the page, usually it bubbles up in subtle ways. Like if they have thought things through, if they have thought about sort of lightly about the history, if they have thought deeply about sort of like the parts of the world that affect the character, then often I, I don't end up confused because even if it's there's not like a literal paragraph where it's like, and in this age we got you know, this person begat this person and then the world was whatever. Uh, it, it comes out. It comes out kind of organically and bubbles up. And so, um, so yeah. So I, I, I like the iceberg metaphor only because I like, I like it when there's things under the surface that you can't see that are just all in support of that. Yeah, and I liked what you said earlier about that as writers, we can get kind of too enamored with um, some part of our plot or our characters, the way the characters are interacting and kind of forget that there's an entire rest of the world that's like supporting that moment. And I think that that kind of comes in here too, right? That it's like, if you if you think about all of those elements of the world that are supporting whatever moment your characters are having, that they aren't existing in a vacuum. I mean, even if it's in space, it's they're still not in a vacuum, actually. <laughs> Um, that, that, yeah, I think that could actually add and give opportunities for richness to characters and to plot points and to, you know, just even, you know, little moments in the text when there's a whole world existing around these people that's affecting them and that's, you know, affecting how they go about their day, who they interact with, how they interact with people socially, culturally, yeah. whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is to be human. Like, no choice you make is not affected by your surroundings and by sort of, like, the history that you have with the world around you. And I think the same is with... It, it's sort of, like, choosing what things affect your characters in their writing. You're, you're absolutely right. I feel like as writers, we sometimes have to be able to see the forest and the trees at the same time. Perhaps That's why I'm so oppressed! <laughs> zooming in or out, you know, like to show the reader one thing or the other, but the, the writer needs to needs to see and understand both and, and know what's in there. Yeah. That's what the spreadsheet is for. 
Because I can't keep it all in my brain at the same time. <laughs> like, you're in that balance of knowing when to show which. Like, do I show a tree? Or do I need to pan out and show the whole forest? Like, there's there's moments for each. And Do I go way in on a leaf? Yeah. Like, is this veins on a leaf time? It's funny. It's it, No, I, you're absolutely right. And what is interesting, too, is when to use those things. Because sometimes, like, there's several different strategies for depending on what you're good at. I mean, there's always the question I'm fascinated by is how to use a learning curve and how to use the fact that you've made a reader work really hard so that when they get over the hump, they're like, I have, I have invested so much brain space in this. I, I am along for the ride and like, and when to kind of, when to onboard people really quickly and when to onboard people more slowly and, and how much like work you want to make a reader do for your world. And, and I, I think there's, there's so many different ways to go about this. Like I think um, Evan Winter is a person who does really incredible world building and utilizes that on that steep on ramp in such a brilliant way because um, their book, his book, uh, the rage of dragons, that first opening chapter had me immediately, but I had to work so hard to understand what was happening. <laughs> Because I was like, there's ships and dragons and there's like two people and everything has like a capital letter. And it's like, it's so exciting, but I had to work really hard to understand it. And by the time I was over that hump, I I knew what was going on. I knew the world. I felt like I understood it intimately. And the whole rest of the book, I was like, I've got this. I've got this. And and just like once you've had that, I, I don't want to say sunk cost because it's not a sunk cost. It's like a, it's an investment. <laughs> investment. That's the word. Once you once you've invested that time, you're more likely to enjoy the the to stick with it. But then how do you balance that with like making people feel out of out of the loop? <laughs> One thing I was thinking about when you were talking about some of these awesome books that um, some of us have read is that we've only seen like the final product. And as readers, it's usually what we see is we see this like final fleshed out developed thing, but you're seeing so much of, of what folks are writing like in development. From seeing world building as it's developing, are there elements that you can kind of see that help to make the world building work well and feel alive and fleshed out? I mean, I, I can tell you it usually happens between the first and second draft is because that's when I've done all of my big questions. And it's hard to say any one specific thing just because every book has its own purpose. Um, every book is trying to do something different with its world. Um, but but I can say one of my favorite things to see is to see the voice evolve with sort of like the world building so if a character suddenly has kind of like a different perspective on things based on an edit that we've done to um to their upbringing or to the situation that they're in or to the world that they're in it's it's really cool to see that reflected in the voice of the character or sort of the tone of the manuscript itself and that that's just one of the things that I think takes a manuscript to the next level is when you have have that sort of like lived in feeling not just in the surroundings but in in the way a character speaks and views the world um and i just i think that's fantastic <laughs> that, that is so cool because i mean yeah you're right the way that a character is viewing the world responding reacting thinking about what they're seeing it's all affected by how they understand their world which is like yeah. 
world building, but then like leveled up to the next level of world building, which is like, how is the character actually interacting with that world? And how is it interacting with the character? Yeah, one of my I'm I'm editing or I finished editing a book recently where um, and I haven't announced it, so I can't say what it is. But uh, but the the world is really cool. It's based around this this goddess who is chosen from as a child and then um, is sort of like isolated, but also very high status. And it takes place from her perspective. And so it's really interesting to see the voice. It's very formal and very um you know, obviously because she's in, in this status, but it's also very sharp and impatient and, um, and naive as well, which is, which is, I think, such an interesting way of reflecting the circumstances of this world. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things oh, to say. That is really cool. So when you can tell us what that is, um, if you could loop back around and let us I'll know. I'll loop back around. <laughs> that sounds very cool. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be sure to shout about it on Twitter or something. Yes, we'll, we'll <laughs> eagerly await that. And hopefully Twitter will still exist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's kind of like a world building thing, too. Look at what, like, look at how Elon Musk deciding he wants to charge $8 for a blue check is changing sort of what it means to be an authority on this platform. Yeah. 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 And that's an economics decision, so. All comes back to money eventually. It's all interconnected. It's all part of the story. (laughs) We haven't talked about taxes yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things, like, I I think it's fun, too, to sort of, as a reader, when you're taking in a world, but but as a reader who is also a writer, there's always part of my brain that's looking at, like, the craft and looking at, at what another writer's doing. Mm-hmm. And wondering, like, which bits of this excited you the most as a writer? And which which bits were maybe the part that your editor had to poke at you? For me, I often <laughs> have to be poked on the economy because I don't like lumber. So I don't want to think about numbers. Um, or like, you know, my, my, my battle scenes were something that I had to be prodded on a little bit. And then by the time we got to the final draft, a bunch of people said, like, oh, those scenes were so great. It's my favorite part. And I'm like, it was not my favorite part. <laughs> But I'm glad you liked it. I weirdly think <laughs> that battle scenes are a challenge for most people to write. Like, even my authors who are famously good at their battle scenes, like, just save hard. them for last or struggle through them. And, yeah, it's it's so worth it. It's so worth it because they are really exciting and big set pieces, but you're not the only one. <laughs> I think any scene um, that requires that many moving pieces is just a challenge. Um, because yeah, you have to keep track of a lot. I mean, linking it very loosely to world building. Like, I swear, I like, I have to like draw myself terrain maps. It's ridiculous. Cause I have to be like, I, where did I put the hill? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's real. That's a real challenge. Where is the hill? The hill? <laughs> oh, and there's, there's so, I mean, there's so many little things from the world building that can affect. Yeah. A battle scene. What are their shoes like? You know, what are they wearing? How have they been Throwing trained? Nose. To find, you know, like all these all these little bitty things that can really affect the details of the scene. Mm. And if you know those de- if you know your world well enough to know those details, I think they can really make a battle scene pop. If you don't have that grounding, I think the battle scene can kind of become yeah, like. And then they fought upon the plains, and swords clashed. <laughs> so yes, the clashing sword, the sound of drums, banners, and many, there many are banners. warriors. I don't know. Did things. <laughs> 
I know, yeah. And, and mm. that interplay between those details and how a character is experiencing those details and what they understand and expect out of a battle. I mean, depending on what kind of character you're talking about and what their upbringing is and what their culture is and what their personal belief systems are and how they fit into the society around them, like they have very different opinions about what a battle means. You know? Did they ever expect to be here? Yeah. (laughs) Did their upbringing lead them to think they would be in a battle someday? Or is this a big surprise? This is, is, things took a turn somewhere along the way and it's not record scratch that's me you're probably wondering how i got here (laughs) whose fault is that all of you (laughs) do you ever find yourself encouraging your authors to be meaner like you need to be meaner to these characters yes yes i actually recently told an author that they had to kill somebody off who was important because they kept killing off they kept introducing characters who were like new and then killing them off. And I'm like, I know why you did this. It's because you don't want to kill any of your main characters, but you have to do it. Otherwise, <laughs> you're no stakes. Yeah, I know that trick. Yep. That's, that's the Stranger Things trick. <laughs> mm-hmm. In this case, the answer was to reach back into book one and pull pe- pull some char- some side characters that people liked and bring them into book two. And, and I was like, great, to perfect. And then, then Love it. Exactly. Yeah. It's great. Those characters got the call back thinking like, yes, I'm in book two. And then, oh. If you're a Aww. character and you're called into book two, don't go. No. <laughs> don't go in there. I'm, I'm going don't to the go. show. No, that's not it, son. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Absolutely. It's always a trap. <laughs> Although actually into into sort of like world building and like building in sort of like stakes and, and battles. Another thing that happened in this novel. I, I'm only talking about this one because I, I edited it recently. Um and uh and it was really fun. It was it was like one of the easier edits that I did. So I apologize to this author for talking about it so much on this podcast. But one of the things they did, too, was that they had people, like, go through these... It's a quest novel, and they went through these great challenges over these great things, and they had to have one person, like, run away. Um, and it brought up the question, if if they could just get back to... There was, like, a big river that they had to cross, a big lake, and they ran the person ran away once they were on the other side of the river and i was like why did they cross this big i keep calling it river lake why do they keep cross this big lake to begin with if it was so dangerous when they could have just taken a couple of extra days and gone around it and so um and so the way she fixed it was so clever is that they she just said he ran away but he didn't and like intended to go back but she didn't say he was going back she just kind of obfuscated that they were going back so that the reader didn't have to think about it. And that's Mm. such an interesting way of fixing things is that you can either call attention to the thing that readers are confused about, or you can just kind of like, your podcast listeners are not going to appreciate my hand (laughs) movements here, but they're (laughs) like, they could just like wiggle around it in some way. And as long as you're, you know, as long as you, you in as like the author have like, a firm grasp of what's going on. Like the reader can just interpret like, oh, it's going to take them a hundred days to get back, you know. And there are little signals you can give that sort of tells the reader, don't worry about it. Exactly. (laughs) That is not a detail you need to continue the story. (laughs) I think sometimes we overestimate what readers need to know. We're sitting there thinking like, oh, well, I have to, I have to explain this. I have, they, they need to know. And they're like, I actually don't care. I don't, no, I want to move on with the story and, (laughs) That's not important. That is definitely a thing I do. Yeah. Like, I worry 
in the age of this internet when things get picked over so much, I'm like, if I don't explain every... And this might come back again to Twitter, too, in the way that people have to explain everything you say there. Unless <laughs> oh, no. someone finds, you know, the bad faith argument or the thing you didn't remember to mention. And, like, that gets into my head sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, I must answer every possible question. No, you don't have to. You actually don't have Unnecessary. to. Unnecessary. Answer yeah. the important let, questions. Let your editor bother you about that. <laughs> let your editor ask the questions. <laughs> this reminds me of a thing from the early days of, of the Internet, back when, back when Buffy was airing live. And there was some episode where it, it was actually the episode where faith was in buffy's body but that doesn't matter because she, she bought an airplane ticket to like go to china or just somewhere else and then somebody on the internet was like since when does buffy have a passport and then somebody else was like i think that's one of those things we can take as red without <laughs> needing a specific scene of buffy at the passport office <laughs> and then that became a term of the passport scene of a scene you don't need to see to presume that happened you know and it's funny because i feel like it's a hallmark of like actually really bad movies that they will show you the thing that you didn't need to see like parking or pulling into traffic or unlocking a door that is not a suspenseful unlocking a door. It's just Bob got home from work and he has to go inside his house. So he unlocks his door and like, we didn't need any of that. Like that was unnecessary to understand what was happening. But someone it's, got in their head. I need to show that Bob can parallel park. And so I'm going to show it. It's like, if that becomes a thing in the third act that his parallel parking <laughs> skills are what saved, no, it's, then it's, yes. It's not a Chekhov's but... parallel parking. It's just <laughs> terrible Which would be brilliant. <laughs> but like, yeah, if the camera lingers on him turning the lock, then it's like, oh, is this an important lock? Right. Is this... Is this right. going to be a thing later? And you can absolutely send kind of like bad faith signals to your reader by lingering <laughs> on the wrong stuff. Like you expect yeah. the parallel parking is right. going to come back later. You think that the the key is unlocking something spooky or magical or important. And no. My son is in a class right now that in a film class where directors of the film they watch come and talk to them and all that. And there's been times where he's like, he's it's like, so you have these scenes that seem to be just long takes that don't do anything. What's up with that? And the director's like, yeah, that's because the movie had to be 90 minutes to get into this festival. <laughs> I feel like there are definitely things in TV, too, especially because, like, back when TV was less streaming and, and more timed to, like, commercials mm -hmm. and stuff. I remember I, 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 the West Wing Weekly podcast had a bunch of, like, you know, the showrunners and writers and things on it as they were examining and rewatching the show and several times they would be like yeah those conversations happened because we needed 45 more seconds <laughs> we, we needed that which is not a problem we have as book writers right like that's it's a different calculus of of you know screen time versus page time we don't we don't have to hit those marks in quite the same way yeah not exactly the same way although you still are having to deal with sort of like your chapter pacing and yeah. your I do so pay attention to the actual numbers when it comes to like chapter pacing and all that. Cause I use that feature on Scrivener where it tells you the word count of like each scene. And then when you put it together in a chapter with the word count of the chapter and I like, well, look at that math wise and just be like, 
is this is this going on too long it's like or is this one is it like a short chapter and then a long chapter and i think about the people who would be like i i've read half this chapter and god it's too many pages to the end and maybe i'll just put the book down and <laughs> and not bother again or if i if i don't give them a break soon <laughs> I think that's really smart. I mean, you know, you obviously don't want to become too obsessed with it, that it, like, par- paralyzes you. Right. But but I think that's smart. It's it's definitely wise to consider sort of the overall rhythm of your piece. And, you know, if you're writing, like, one kind of fantasy novel versus another, your rhythm should be different, just the same way, like, with music. With one piece of music, your rhythm has to be different. For pop, your rhythm is different than opera. I love it. Do that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've kind of talked about the spots where you're like, you're like poking for like explain more. Do you find that there are any elements or, or things that, that writers do that they overthink or over explain or overdo it? And, and how, how do you address that? I mean, not that we ever believe you can truly overthink anything, but in terms of making it onto the page, you know, how, how do you address that as an editor? Oh, overthink it all, but just keep it to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like now is a good time to add the caveat that like everything, every piece of advice that I say is, is kind of can be broken and if you think like you can make something work and I've been like, never do this, but you're like, I can do this. Try it. You know, I, 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 anything can work. Any rule can be broken as long as you know that you're breaking it and you're being selective about it. But that being said, most of the time it's like myths and legends. Y'all writers love your myths and legends. We do. We do. And I love them too, which is why I like ephemera. But very often, if it's on the page, I don't need it. Usually, I, I not all the time. Again, the caveat at the top, but a lot of the times they can they can be sh- like trimmed down. <laughs> is, is it a question of placement and and we were talking about rhythm? I mean, is that sometimes part mm. of the issue too of like where this is happening and and how it's woven into the text? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And in fact, you bringing that up makes me think of The Stardust Thief, which is a book that I edited um, and that came out last this year. And that one has myths and legends woven into it and and both woven into it and then also as individual chapters in the novel. So like that's as myth and legend heavy as you can get. But the whole novel is structured around the idea that um, that these myths are potential are true in some ways and not true in others and the ways that they're true and the ways that they're not true are really integral to the way that the world works and then also the way that the story unfolds and then on top of that the one of the main characters is a storyteller and so on three levels like they've got this myth and legend working into the story and that's why i think that chelsea was able to just the author chelsea abdullah was able to justify how much screen time she was giving to chapters that essentially were a complete break from the narrative, but but they worked because the the they were about the scenes that were ha- the they were about the scenes that were happening. They were being reexamined in light of scenes that were happening, and then also were integral to the character development of one of the main characters. So uh, so yeah, it, it is very much about like how you use it and 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 how you place it and how you justify it. I think it was was it Little Thieves by Margaret Owen. I'm trying to remember. There was a book I read sometime within the last couple of years that did something like that, where you got pieces of one fairy tale, 
sort of like bit by bit through the book. And they were almost mm. like section breaks. Mm. And you didn't quite understand at first, like how they were tying to the main narrative you were reading. And then by the time you got to the last segment, it was like, oh, okay. oh, that feels so, that sounds so satisfying. That, I, I love when people can do things like that. It's just like, it's like, now I understand why I was being told this story the whole way through. Excellent. Awesome. Great. It's a little mirror on the main narrative. It is one of those structure things that if you can pull it off, it's, it's, truly a delight it's hot it's hot if you can pull it off (laughs) (laughs) sexy writing well i love i love what you're saying too about like make it work the the sort of tim gun approach to to world building it's like this might look wild these elements might be a little out there but you can make it work then then it's fashion then (laughs) what everyone else will be imitating you know a few years from now you know like it's 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 some of it is nerve. Some of it is is daring to to put the elements together in a way that the reader might not expect. Absolutely. I mean, like it goes all the way back to Tolkien. Like fa- fairies at the time. I mean, excuse me, elves at the time were not the cliche they yeah. are now. They were not like these tall, elegant, like ephemeral beings. They were like little annoying sprites and shoe elves and things like that and Tolkien was annoyed he was like um <laughs> no in Anglo-Saxon literature he pushed up his glasses and was like excuse me in Anglo-Saxon well, literature actually. they were actually more angelic beings <laughs> blah, blah, blah. like and he had the moxie to be like I'm going to put that in my book so yeah you can kind of yeah you can make it work <laughs> it was I was completely off the subject from from writing fantasy books but I was working with some of my like students today um because they teach writing and and they're writing their papers and some of them have chosen like very safe topics and it's like they've got a nice structure in their paper and it will be a fine paper and then some of them like did more complex stuff and I was like so here's the thing you're playing on hard mode this is going to be hard to pull off but it's going to be a way better paper if you pull it off. So, so do it. I want to see you do it because it is, it's like, I mean, the, the, the more complex or the more risky or the weirder thing you do, or that structural thing, that's going to be really hard to pull off. It's like, it's playing on hard mode, but when it works, it's memorable and it's enjoyable to read and it's fun. And, you know, it's worth the experiment sometimes, even if you fail and trunk it and say, nope, that learn something. But that's. But you do occasionally get that wild hair where you're just like, this book is going to be in second person future tense. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to make it work. And like, OK, good luck to you, buddy. I, I believe in you. <laughs> and this is why we have have beta readers and trusted friends and then eventually editors who are like, Let's talk. (laughs) You tried something, and I'm proud of you, (laughs) but... Yeah, I feel if there's anything I want listeners to sort of take away from this, it's that, like, all these opinions about, like, what world building should and shouldn't be are all, at the end of the day, they're in your power, you know? And if as long as you realize, as long as you are cognizant and thoughtful about what you're doing and why, some you know you can pull it off. No one's stopping you from trying, and and you know trying is is how you make cool things. So definitely, and when it when it comes to the trying, 
and the the crafting and the trying to make it work. I mean, we kind of have to get into the nitty gritty of craft as writers that we can have these big ideas and play with them and try to make them them work. But there there's an element of actually crafting it. Um, and I guess I'm wondering from the editorial perspective, like when you're looking at that element of craft of how is it fitting in? Like how, how is the world building getting folded in? What are things that you look for and, and things that, that writers and, 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 and other creators of worlds should be thinking about and be aware of? I'm trying to come up with an answer that's not just like a repeat of everything yeah. <laughs> I've said because I, because to me to me the answer is always like it make does it make sense does it the answer yeah. to all of your questions to me is does it make sense so like like root <laughs> root of world building craft is like exact, check to make exactly. sure it makes sense <laughs> exactly and that's such a that's such sort of an editor perspective because we're not we're not the ones that go in and build these things up we're not we're just we're just the checks and balances to make sure that you've done the thing that you want to do successfully um i can i can say uh, i can sort of answer a trend like maybe like a trend in some, one of the world building places that i've noticed people in recent submissions have been kind of flagging um and it may be a surprising thing to you guys but is was really magic systems i i know there was like a big trend and everybody decided like in everybody making their magic systems really complex and thought out and but recently in my submissions i've been i've been noticing that the magic systems have been cool obviously but don't always if you think them out like two more steps they don't sort of flow into sort of what the rest of the world is doing. And you kind of have to think, how does that magic system interact with the politics and, and what these characters are doing? Um, but yeah, yeah, it, which I'm surprised by because, like I said, I've been in this business a decade and a decade ago, everybody had their magic systems and their politics like locked locked in. Um. <laughs> well, it's something we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Like magic literalizes so many abstract concepts i think in a way and so many of those are about power dynamics mm-hmm. so to me it's like well of course it's politics it's always magic's always gonna be politics in some way or another so it's really fascinating that that trend is shifting at least among submissions yeah yeah it, yeah and um and i and sometimes i think it's because maybe we're going in sort of a little bit more of a character focused um direction right now i, I mean all of these trends kind of come and go <laughs> And <laughs> maybe and, real world and, politics have us all sick of writing about politics. Exhausted. And, I don't know. Yeah. Just like, I just, I don't, I don't want to, don't want to. I, I just want to write a story about people who use magic and make coffee. And I don't want like world changing events. So. Too, you know, there, there's, there has been this sort of slide for, for more cozy fantasy lately. We were talking earlier about, you know, stakes and how they end up consuming the whole world. But mm-hmm. I feel like I've been, I've been seeing more cozy fantasies and people wanting more cozy fantasies. As well. I, I've I've been seeing them in in my submissions and enjoying them as well. They're they're kind of refreshing. I <laughs> I mean, it if you look at sort of any pop culture trend, everything moves in sort of phases of light and dark. And so you know, we came off of grim dark and zombies, and um, now our and post-apocalyptic and this is like dark heavy stuff and now we're kind of coming into this place where we're like the world is kind of dark and heavy so maybe let's like look at these lighter things or even (laughs) if we are looking at darker things look at them in kind of like a not a not a funny way but in kind of like a 
a sexy way or an appealing way as opposed to like everything's gonna devour you you know um so 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 yeah so i we are kind of moving in the lighter direction this like hope punk vision of fantasy and you know i i'm along for the ride i think it's fun i i oh i got my start in sort of loving grimdark fantasy and i'm sure it will come back in a cycle or two but for right now I see, I see lots of, lots of happy stories with happy endings and people being kind to each other. <laughs> that, that reminds me of this horror movie called uh, Little Monsters, which I, I do highly recommend, actually. It's a zombie movie, but the main gist of it is Lupita Nyong'o plays a kindergarten teacher who is like at a field trip with her kindergarten class when this zombie outbreak happens. And so, so much of it is about her not just keeping her kids physically safe but emotionally safe and like and not and so they don't have to be scared about this really scary thing that's happening and like keeping that buffer around them while also keeping them from being eaten by zombies (laughs) and it's it's actually really really sweet oh (laughs) that sounds good i think it's 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 so interesting. I think the zombie thing um, really illustrates it well that like any, almost any concept you can take almost any angle on it. Like it can be grim horror slasher. It can be overarching dystopia. It can be comedy. It can be romance. It can be a kindergarten class and their emotional well-being. Like you can take almost any like world <laughs> and concept and like just what, what angle are you going to come at it with and what are you going to do with it? And I, I think it's really fun to see that. Like, and fantasy is so fun for that because yeah, the same fantasy world concept can tell all kinds of different stories. If that's what you want to do with it, whatever you as a reader want to kind of like take an angle on it. What kind of story do you want to tell? Yeah, absolutely. Although as we've been talking, I've been thinking about sort of like the lighter side of world building in sort of like the food and and the things that do affect your your experience as like a person in a world, but don't necessarily affect the plot and, and thinking about how those are important as well. You know, and I and I'm thinking about um, a book that uh, that I recently bought where a lot of the world building it, sorry not a lot of the world of the thing but like where the little details are specifically like southeast asian and so it comes out in just like the food that people are eating and and not really necessarily in sort of like a magic system political structure way but just comes out in these really like subtle cultural things that affect how people view themselves um it and 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 just what they see every day and how that can be really powerful and and i think that there's you know we we talk about wanting to see different kinds of stories and different kinds of worlds and different perspectives and it is often those little details that that is coming through in you know a very similar story arc reads and feels and a reader is immersed in a different place if if all those details are changing and the book can feel just completely different. And so I, I love seeing that when people are playing with the everyday details. It makes it more yeah, fun for me to yeah. read because I like food too. So if, if you're like... <laughs> love food. There is if that. I, if I can imagine like where I would go to dinner in your world, I'm, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> 
You know what? Like that, that I think is a detail I almost never cut is, is if somebody's <laughs> like, and this is what we ate for dinner. I'm like, yes, please tell yes. me more. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing like, that food like tells you about a world and about how people like engage with their environment and their economy and their family and everything else. Like it's all there in a meal, whether that meal's like, you know, fancy restaurant or came out of a crock pot. I mean, absolutely. It can be revealing and sometimes it can just be. I I always think about the um somebody did like a long Twitter thread a few years ago about like stew and how like stew is the dumbest uh <laughs> fantasy travel food. Oh, yeah, and, travel food no. Yeah. Yeah. Stew is stew and is I, a home food. You you don't want to yeah. <laughs> it can be an in food. You can have it at an, an in food. But like Exactly. Never on the no, road. Having... Samwise, Samwise Ganji out there with his conies. Like, <laughs> come on, buddy. This is too time intensive. No, for... do, do you have any idea how long it takes to start a fire and then actually get coals that you can cook on? You don't want to do that on the road. That's that's a terrible idea. This is how yeah. warps find you. <laughs> All I can think of is when I was a Girl Scout and was, like, making things in, like, little tinfoil, like... Things. <laughs> the, the do you ever do the analog version of an easy bake oven? Just the, like the, yeah, the pudgy pie maker, the little like what? Do, you, what? do these pudgy pies? Rowena, we need more details. <laughs> no, it was like this, this little. It was this like I'm making a thing with my hands. She's making clam she's, hands, yes. listeners. So basically, she's... it was like a metal <laughs> clamshell kind of a doohickey on a long stick, and you put like buttered Wonder Bread on either side of the clamshell, and then fillings. And then you clamped it together Wait. and like stuck it in the fire and it was supposed to cook it. But I mean, really, it just yes, kind of like... Yes, we called them something different. You just like singed the crap out of it. And then you had like yeah. a blackened... <laughs> it was not good. ...wonder bread pocket that you were oh, supposed to eat. Because you have to modulate. You don't just stick it in the no, fire. You I to, know. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with, with, with roasting marshmallows. You need... <laughs> You need craft in, yes. in roasting marshmallows. Slow roast. See, I, I do the slow roasted, but then you have to you have to catch it on fire at some point, or else it's not a s'more. That's your finishing move. Yes. It's not yeah. like <laughs> you don't go straight to that. No. If you go straight to that, the inside doesn't get melted. Exactly. So, yeah. My favorite is to take the graham cracker and put the chocolate on top and put it like next to the fire, uh, but not so, so that the chocolate gets a little melty mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. 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 It's a good technique. That's good thinking. Because a cold, cold, cold little Hershey thing and a hot marshmallow is no, not, especially like not when, the like, way, when you're camping and, like, all of your food's really cold. And so, like, that <laughs> chocolate is, like, a brick. <laughs> yeah. Is this going to make it into yeah, the podcast? Probably. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it is totally going to make it into the podcast because because it is a metaphor for, for doing things at the right time <laughs> and putting them together why, why don't more in the most pleasing way. Have s'mores? And I'd say I am so proud really of my... Should. I'm so proud of my kid because we had a box of, you know, the uh, petite écolier cookies that are like the kind of graham crackery. And then they have like a chocolate, like, oh yeah, she like gets really this good. cookie and she's like, this would be really good to make s'mores. And I'm like, oh, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. That is really brilliant. See Not these details. These they details, communicate so much yes. about character, <laughs> about our upbringing, and that risk, our experiences, that risk, how they've shaped that us. Risk-taking move where you <laughs> make the best s'more ever. Oh gosh! <laughs> and too, like what characters get passionate about? What do they have really firm opinions yes. on? A lot of times, it's food. <laughs> yeah, like people get intense. Yeah, just. 
You want to see your characters go nuts, bring up the is a hot dog a sandwich debate and watch them go at it. <laughs> but don't make us read that. That would probably be a bad idea. I, I would cut that. You're right. <laughs> I would advise. To figure out things I'm about your character. I'm going to tell you right now. Put that one in the ephemera. Yeah. That, can be a, that can be a newsletter. That's a newsletter bonus. A right newsletter there. bonus. <laughs> That, that's a web page extra. <laughs> that could be a good character building exercise. It could be. Sure. No. No, it's not. <laughs> if it is, you just keep that to yourself. <laughs> I did one once that was like, it was a prompt, it was on Instagram or something that was like, how would your characters be on Great British Bake Off? And I was like, let me think about that for a minute. <laughs> That's a good question. It's a good way to think about, like, yeah. what would their approach be? What kind of person, you know, what kind of niche role would they be filling on the show? I would always like to be filling the, like, elderly gentleman from, like, West Tottenham, <laughs> who, like, only makes, like, really old-fashioned-y things. <laughs> that would be me. And it's not, like, not that good, because yeah. I'm not that good of a baker. Are you okay, Marshall? Yeah, I am He's very broken. good. I'm just, we, I, we sometimes get the giggles slow. towards the end of episodes. It's true. Yeah. That's usually when we know it's time it's to... probably time to, <laughs> to wrap up. <laughs> so if we have covered everything that you wanted to get into before we wrap things up. I just want to double check before we... What, world, what orbit worlds have you liked the best? Ooh. I mean, for me, I... Wait, 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 wait. Wait. Uh, Green Bone Sog is an orbit book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, so boom. There, yeah, there, there we go. Done. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Done. <laughs> done. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Fondly, boom, done. Again, if I know where I'll go to dinner in a world, I'm pretty happy. Um, then oh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely know where I'd go to yeah. dinner in Jan Loon. Um, <laughs> I, I've loved Melissa Caruso's books, and I've really loved um, how we've got like the two different time periods going. Um, and that just, I just, mm-hmm. just geek on a world building level on that, that we get to see how a world changes between the first trilogy and the second trilogy. I just think that's, that's fun. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's a really cool thing that, that Melissa got to do. I just finished an orbit book actually. Um, Notorious Sorcerer was oh, cool. a real, was a really interesting world. And like, there were, there were there were so many different angles on the society, and I think th- I think it's going to continue. I don't think it was a standalone. I think there's more coming, and I'm really excited to see like how this particular city that is the focal point of of everything everything happens sort of within this this little realm. Um, I'm excited to see how it pans out and, and where it's going. That's hard to pick. Like it's hard to pick one. I know there's so, there's many. so many. There's good so many. <laughs> Y'all are doing some really? of the most yeah. interesting and fascinating things in fantasy right now. So, oh, well, we've got a good team. We've got a good team. Everybody on the team is kind of a champion. So, thanks for letting me yes. put you guys in the hot seat. <laughs> no, that's good. That's it's fair. A, it was a good we, seat. we rarely good have seat. The, the tables turned on us that way. It's good. <laughs> well, we have a tradition on the podcast that when we have a guest, we invite said guest to contribute a little bit of trivia to the world that we are building um, on air together. And we've had a, a lovely wide range of, of world building bits and pieces from the most trivial to absolute tent holes end up landing in our world from our guests. So we are curious what you brought us as a parting gift. 
Um, do you guys have pineapples yet? If not, we not should. Not explicitly. Not explicitly. Well, I I love I love pineapples from like the Vic- I'm gonna get the time period wrong, but from like the Victorian era where they were so rare and they were such this symbol, uh, this status symbol of wealth that you would have a pi- rotting pineapple sit on your like mantle for months. <laughs> I would like to offer you this rotting pineapple oh. as a status symbol. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. No one's so kind. No one's ever given us a rotting pineapple before. Now, does it mean yeah. anything specific besides status? And does it represent a specific kind of status? Or I mean, like what, I assume what that does it, it represent? I, I, I assume that it comes from a faraway place um, that is really hard to get to and is quite um, expensive to procure. And also that you're not familiar enough with that place to want to eat the pineapple. So you just want to decorate with it. Decorate. It's pretty weird looking. I like that. Yeah. If you didn't know there was good stuff inside it, it'd be suspect. It would be. (laughs) And and what's the the old, I don't know if it's an old wives tale or not, but that you shouldn't eat an entire pineapple. Really? It gives you a bad tummy ache and, and you'll have a bad too, time. Like, too acidic? Too acidic. Too... Huh. So maybe maybe see... someone did just eat way too much pineapple and now it has this like legend of like, it is beautiful, but, like, um, but dangerous. Like, 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 like when people stopped eating tomatoes because they yeah. were eating them off of pewter and the acid like was absorbing the pewter and they were like, these Killing tomatoes are devil slowly. fruit because they kill us. And it's like, actually, it's the, it's the lead. The lead's good. <laughs> it's the that. lead. You Stop eating lead. <laughs> I can see that being a similar thing. Yeah. Well, I, well, in uh, speaking of old wives' tales, uh, it's also supposed to lead to um, induced labor. Yeah. So I, yeah. when I was having my kid, I ate a boatload. I ate like a, a whole pineapple every day <laughs> at the towards the end. <laughs> That's a lot. It was a lot of pineapple. <laughs> but anyway, my gift no, to you, you is the a concept of this thing. Well, thank thank is, you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for the rotting pineapple <laughs> and for joining us this evening. We've had a fantastic talk. Um, I appreciate your insights so much, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing what you've had to say as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. <laughs> Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on December 7th, where we'll be talking with Charlene Harris about making the incredible credible. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including pre-ordering Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making, and help us all build until it hurts.